First John chapter four, it says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. You are of God, little children. And have overcome them. Because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world. Therefore they speak as the world. And the world hears them. We are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The theme, remember, of this little book is fellowship. Fellowship with God and then fellowship with each other. And remember what that word means. It means having access to God, friendship with God, communication with God, intimacy with God. Fellowship is something that you participate in. John explodes the lie that you can have fellowship with God and continue in sin in chapter 1, verses 6 to 16. But yet we are sinful. And then Jesus comes. Jesus comes into our heart and into our life and he removes the penalty of sin and he is in the process of breaking the power of sin by the Holy Spirit. One day he will remove us from the very presence of sin. We will die or we will be raptured. But God in his grace and his mercy is going to remove you from this circumstance and put you into an eternal circumstance. Righteousness is impossible on our own apart from Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 10, and then all the way to chapter 2. John's given us a series of tests. Do we really know God? Do we really love God? And remember, the tests that we've taken included the test of obedience to God's commandments, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Loving our neighbor, loving brothers and sisters, spiritual growth, refusing to love the world, guarding against antichrists and false teachers, allowing the gospel to live in us, and then abiding in Christ. And what are the tests that really prove that we love the Lord? We experience salvation for ourselves. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. We turn from sin's enslavement. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Our lives are marked by love. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. We have a heart that is cleansed chapter 3 verses 18 through 24 which means we have a pure conscience and now John offers the fact that we are able and willing to test the spirits of the false teachers 
in verses 1 through 6. Now, let's be clear. We are to love people. That means believers and unbelievers. When the Bible uses the term love, it doesn't mean a warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up in the pit of your stomach and gives you the, the, the chills and makes your hair stand on end. That's not what the Bible means by love. In the Bible, love isn't just simply a feeling of affection. Love is a willingness to do what's right towards another person. And the reason why I use that definition is because some people might think, well, is it right to tell people? Well, let me put it to you a little bit differently. Imagine if you asked the person this question. If what you believed wasn't true, would you want to know it? Now think about that question long and hard because there's really only two answers. The answer is yes or no. And and if what you believe wasn't true and you really do want to know it, imagine if you said, no, I'm happy, I'm content. I'm, I'm content to remain in my own belief system. I don't want anything to challenge that belief. I don't want anything to disrupt that belief. I don't want anyone to in any way hinder that belief. The Bible teaches that we're to think the best and the highest about people. And we're also to think the best and highest about those who teach the Bible. But then what do we do with the numerous warnings about false prophets and false teachers and false gospels and false signs and false miracles? We're to love people, but we aren't called on to be naive or gullible. John digresses for a moment to talk about two spirits, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How can we tell if something is true or false? You know, having my grandchildren here is a wonderful thrill. But babies don't have a great deal of discernment. Babies will put almost anything in their mouth. Horrible things, dirty things, disgusting things, things that I dare not even tell you. I remember when I was much younger and my children were much younger, one of my sons was in the backyard and he was playing in the dirt and he found a snail and he came to the back door and his face was covered with green slime because he had been eating snails. Yeah, I know. People go, that is Francesca. Go, it is delicious with a little wine sauce. There was no wine sauce involved. (laughs) Babies aren't able to tell what to put in their mouths. And sometimes Christians aren't able to tell what is appropriate to put in their head or what to put in their heart. Parents have to teach their children to keep certain things out of their mouth. And we too have to be careful what we put in our mind, what we put in our heart, what we allow in our circumstances. We have to cultivate the art of discernment as we try to determine what is true and false. Donald McGavran says, quote, 
If top priority is not given to effective evangelism by our churches in two generations, the church in America will look like its counterpart in Europe, unquote. What's troubling is he said that in the early 1980s. And already a generation has gone by. When he said those words, 14% of the people in Great Britain identified themselves as Christian. The numbers were significantly lower in Sweden, 5%, Finland, 4%, Denmark, 3%. The number of people who self-identify as Christians is shrinking in the United States. And the people who self-identify as spiritual is growing. Many years ago, the publishers of Red Book magazine, this is 1961, hired pollsters to survey the beliefs of seminaries, preparing men for Christian service in Protestant churches. The reason why I bring this up from 1961 is I'm going to connect the past to the present in just a moment. In 1961, according to this survey, only 56% of the seminarians, the people who were getting ready to go to seminary to teach in churches all across America, 56% rejected the virgin birth of Jesus. 71% rejected that there was life after death. 54% rejected the bodily resurrection of Jesus. 98% rejected that there would be a literal, personal, physical return of Jesus Christ. The reason why all of that becomes important is because it becomes indicative of a generation of people who, quite frankly, didn't believe what the Bible said about the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and in many instances, the resurrection of Jesus. And so when John says in this opening verse, beloved, it's that Greek word agapitos, it means the ones who I love or, or my dear friends, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. The language might sound uncomfortable or difficult for some of you perhaps to understand. Because when you think of spirits in your worldview or in normal conversation, you're thinking about invisible spirits of ghosts. When I was a little kid growing up, there was a cartoon called Casper the Friendly Ghost. There was another cartoon of Bullwinkle and Rocky, and at the beginning of it, uh, they, they, they had a scene where they're conjuring up spirits, and one says to the other, are they friendly spirits? The spirits that are here being talked about are the invisible thinking of the false prophets and the false teachers. In other words, this is John's way of saying the deeply held convictions of the teachers. In the Cold War, enemy nations were stockpiling weapons against the United States. We had to figure out a way to disarm their weapons and reduce the amount of weapons produced. In the Cold War, there were several arms treaties that were signed. 
And the enemy gave assurances that they were in fact reducing the number of nuclear weapons and their arms. We filed and signed a treaty with North Korea that they wouldn't blow up things, send rockets into space, which they violated. Ronald Reagan in the 80s made the famous statement concerning what our enemies were doing. He said, trust, but verify. If a person said something, our inclination was to take them at their word. But what Ronald Reagan said is, of course, give people the benefit of the doubt, but verify. Provide substantial evidence that this is true. This is also what's happening in John's day. False prophets had gone into the world. The false prophets made truth claims, assertions about God, about Jesus, about the message of the gospel. And as you can imagine, there were two kinds of claims. Those that the apostles supported and those the apostles didn't support. So you can imagine, even now, imagine a person says, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and another person says, no, he didn't. Now, obviously, those are two claims. Jesus died, and Jesus rose again. There would have been a group of people that said he died, but his resurrection was only philosophical, allegorical, not real. And because the false prophets had gone into the world making claims, assertions about God and the gospel, John had to address these issues. So how do we put pastors and teachers and, and preachers and prophets to the test? When you hear a person on the radio or you see them on television or you read their book, how do you determine whether or not what the person is saying is true? How do we know if a person is speaking for God? Look carefully at verse 4. You are of God. Verse 5. They are of the world. Verse 6. We are of God. In those three pronouns. You are of God. They are of the world. We are of God. We have three groups of people, false prophets, fearless preachers, faithful people. John knew what each and every one of us typically eventually find out. For many people, the tendency is to believe first and test later. John is basically saying, listen Test, And by the way, the word test in the original language was used of the procedure that was used in the ancient world to determine whether a metal was valuable or worthless. Just like today. You have gold and you have silver. And then you have things that look like gold and you have things that look like silver. Even in our world, we have money, paper money that has anti-counterfeiting devices, um, 
that you use to try to determine what is real, what is not real. For those of you who collect art or antiques or coins, you know that if there is such a thing as something that's valuable, there are people who will make every effort to prepare a convincing fake. There are those who insist that they must accept and believe those who make claims that they're hearing from God. So imagine a person says, I've heard from God. And you say, what did God say? And they say something like, Oprah Winfrey's a prophet. And you say, help me understand what that means. Well, Oprah believes this. Oprah believes that all roads lead to heaven. All people are basically good. And that if you do the right thing at the right time, that eventually you're going to be fine. We're commanded to test the claims made by anyone, whether prophets or teachers. Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 8 says, if the trumpet gives an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself for battle? It's his way of saying, when the trumpet blows, if you don't know, it's sounding the alarm. If you don't know that it's trying to tell you to advance or that, you're try that you need to retreat or that you can stay still, you can find yourself in big trouble. One of the marks of false teachers is ambiguity and uncertainty about essential Christian beliefs. So John, when he says, beloved, dear friends, he's speaking to believers. And the simple fact that a person says, I have a message from God, doesn't necessarily make it true. Does the message agree with God's revelation in the Bible? Does it agree with what the Bible has to say? But there are other tests that we've already become aware of. Remember in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, if you just simply turn the page back to verse 19, it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were with us. It's John's way of saying these people left the fellowship of the apostles of Peter, James, and John because they did not agree with Peter, James, and John. And so what was John saying about Jesus? Well, those of you who are even a tiny bit familiar with his gospel, you'll remember that the opening sentence in the opening chapter is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the same was in the beginning with God. And then you march through John's gospel and you read the stories of his life and you read the miracles that he reveals and he is inviting people to actually believe those things. John says one of the marks of a cult is that they abandon fellowship with the followers of Jesus. One of the marks of a cult is they abandon what the apostles have to say about Jesus. 
Tragically, some people remain in the church. They don't always necessarily leave. Some people stay in the church and then they try to divide the church with poison. In Jude chapter 4 it says, For there are certain men who have crept in your midst unaware. The idea being people from the outside have come into the inside and you didn't even know it. We don't always recognize them right away. We don't always recognize because they say, hey, are you a Christian? And they go, yeah. And so you believe them. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, but there were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you who privily or privately shall bring in damnable heresies. His words. What does he mean by that? He means profound and poisonous teachings that will rip churches apart. No one wants to believe that they belong to a cult. But John is saying, guess what? How are we to recognize them? Does this teacher's lifestyle reflect biblical basics about personal purity or, or personal impurity in chapter 3 verse 23 verse and 24 when the pastor talks about having a right relationship with God and he talks about honoring marriage and he talks about some sort of biblical propriety but that person doesn't exercise propriety by any stretch of the imagination what about the fruit of their ministry in chapter 4 verse 6 so the most important thing of all isn't just simply what they say or even what they do, according to John, the most important thing is to ask them the question, what do they believe about Jesus? And you've heard me say this over and over again. If what you believe about Jesus is wrong, it doesn't really matter what you're right about. You see, for the Mormon who believes that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer... Or the Jehovah's Witness who believes that Jesus is the Archangel Michael. Or the New Age Guru who believes that Jesus is an ascended master. Or the Muslim who believes that Jesus was a fine man, a prophet, but he was only a man. Doesn't get it right. A false Jesus will always produce a false gospel. A false Jesus produces a false gospel which will result in a false way of thinking about salvation. In John's day, in the very beginning of the church, there were false teachers with false messages proclaiming a false gospel. And so the believers needed to apply these tests in order to avoid deception. And it's John who uses that term, false prophets. Look, read it for yourself. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they're of God, because many false prophets have gone into the world. Let me explain. The true prophet receives a direct revelation from God. The false prophet 
claims to receive a direct revelation from God. But it's not true. The test is fairly similar to the test that was outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. And then again in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 22. In chapter 18, it basically says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, then that thing is not from the Lord. He has not spoken it. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him, unquote. When Benny Hinn prophesied that homosexuals would be supernaturally burnt from, with fire from heaven and that they would disappear from the planet in the 1990s was lying. This isn't about how you feel about homosexuals or homosexuality. This is about a person making an outrageous statement that simply is not true. When a person makes an outrageous statement that simply is not true, there's two kinds of outrageous statements. Ones that you just sort of make up. And ones that you say, this is what God is saying. When a person says, this is what God is saying, and it proves to be false, then that person is to be rejected. Most of the first generation eyewitnesses to the ministry and the miracles of Jesus have already passed from the scene. Think about just for a moment history. When John is writing these words, it's about 95 AD. Jesus dies on the cross in 33 AD. Do the math. 43, 53, 63, 73, 83, 93, 60 Years have gone by. Most of the people who witnessed what Jesus did and what Jesus said and the eyewitnesses were already gone. And so the second and the third generations were already alive. And some of them were doubting the apostles' testimony. They thought to themselves, what if the apostles have distorted the, 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 the record? What if they've left something out? What if they've added something that I don't know anything about? Remember, in the ancient Middle East, there was a rich variety of worldviews that were already on the scene. In Greek philosophy, there were these people who believed that spirit was good and that matter was evil. And so there was a group of people who arose, I've already talked a little bit about them, called the Gnostics and the Docetists. The Gnostics and the Docetists came up with the bizarre idea that because spirit is good and matter is evil, that Jesus couldn't possibly have really been human. That Mary gave birth to a human baby, but this human baby grew up and the Christ consciousness came upon this baby when John the Baptist baptized him and then left prior to the cross so that only a physical human being died on that cross. The problem with their bizarre thinking, it wasn't true. 
And so John is going to address this issue. John wants people to understand why it's not true. So in verse 2, when he says, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. What does he mean by that? Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. By come in the flesh, John means acknowledging the full reality of what the Bible teaches about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We go back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You remember in Matthew's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel where it gives the genealogies and the reoccurring testimony of the Bible is, no, no, Jesus was born of Mary. She was a virgin. The Holy Spirit overshadowed her. In other words, this was a supernatural birth because God became a man in human flesh. So when it says every spirit, it means every teacher. It means every person who has anything to say about the reality of who Jesus is. And so John speaking about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God is basically saying not just simply that Jesus was a human being, but that Jesus was God who became a human being. False prophets and false teachers who deny these basic truths, according to John, are antichrist. Their ministry can't be recommended. Their teaching can't be trusted. And so if the person is wrong about Jesus, then it's hard to believe that they could be right about anything else. So we test the confession of the teachers. What do they say about Jesus? And the test isn't restricted to church elders. It isn't restricted to leaders or scholars. The test is to be applied by every single person who self-identifies as a Christian. Every man, every woman, every young person, every person who's a follower of Jesus. And so if a person comes knocking at your door and they say... You know, according to our church, Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. And you need to be able to go, well, that's not what the Bible says. Well, you know, Charles Taze Russell, who founded Jehovah's Witnesses, says that uh, Jesus is the archangel Michael. And you go, well, wait a minute. The writer of Hebrews says that he's not an angel. And, and according to John... He's a person who really came and he was born of a virgin. And the Bible teaches that he's the second person of the Trinity, forever God who acquires a second nature and becomes a human being. So people don't really buy that, right? But people do. They, they fall into traps. And so John is basically asking and answering the question, what do they believe about Jesus? The idea being the invisible idea becomes understandable and accessible. The spirit is the essence of the person speaking. Walter Martin says, quote, A cult is a group of people polarized around someone's interpretation of the Bible and is characterized by major deviations from Orthodox Christianity relative to the cardinal or essential doctrines of the faith, particularly the fact that God became a man in Jesus Christ. Unquote. We might think of this as the Jesus test. 
And that's why it's so very important for each and every one of you to be able to ask this simple question to everyone. What do you believe about Jesus? Tell me what you believe about Jesus. And in verse 3 it says, And every spirit that doesn't confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've heard was coming and is now already in the world. So here, every spirit is a reference to the false teacher, the false prophet, who claims special inspiration by God through the Holy Spirit. So when he says, in every spirit, false prophet, false teacher, who claims to be inspired by God, that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Confess is the word homo logeo. It means to say the same thing. It means to give the same confession. In the context, refusing to acknowledge Jesus means that you deny the true person of Jesus. Every spirit that does not agree with God, homo logeo, say the same thing. That Jesus Christ has come in the flesh in the incarnation born of a virgin, true God of true God, like the apostolic creed says, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, one with the Father. And this is the spirit of Antichrist. And so here's John's analysis and conclusion. Those who say this are not from God. John is saying those who say this are operating on the basis of a false confession that is consistent with the spirit of the Antichrist in verse 3, consistent with the spirit of error in verse 6. Now again, we go back in time and space. We remember that John is writing this to the Christians who are living in the port city of Ephesus. And he basically says, guess what? Antichrists are coming. You, which you have heard were coming and now already are in the world. What does he mean by that? He means that there would be those people who would stand in opposition to the claims of the Apostle John, to the claims of Christ, to the claims of Christianity. So he speaks of the present of false teachers and false prophets. He refers to them as antichrists. And then he speaks also of a final antichrist who's mentioned by Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, the lawless one. There's another kind of major antichrist who remains to be, he's concealed right now, but at one point he will be revealed. But here's what he's saying. The spirit that will be operating in this future Antichrist is already present in the false teachers and false prophets who are making false claims. And so the world here is the word cosmos. Some of you know that word. The world isn't the world of the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called love. The world here is the world that's a philosophical attitude that stands in opposition to God, the things of God, the Christ of God, 
the gospel of God. And so in verse 4, we test ourselves. It says, you are of God, little children. You are of God. And you've overcome them. Who's that? The false prophets and the false teachers. You are of God, little children. You've overcome them. The false teachers, false prophets. Because he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Once again, John uses the term of endearment, little children. He contrasts that with those who opposed him. The contrast is with the believer, you're of God, and the unbeliever, you've overcome them. The tense of the verb, overcome them, is a reference to something that has happened in the past with present results. What does that mean? He's basically saying that the false prophets and the false teachers have showed up on the door with the false message, with the false gospel, with the false views, and the people that he's writing to are, have said, no, I think you've got it all wrong. You see, the Jesus that John the Apostle and Peter the Apostle and Paul the Apostle talked about, the, 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 the people who taught us here in Ephesus, Paul sent us letters and, and Timothy was our pastor for a very long time. And John the Apostle has been our pastor for a very long time. And he told us the story of Jesus, how Jesus was born of a virgin, how he died on the cross for our sins, how he, how he rose from the dead. Paul reminded us that we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. Our pastors over the decades have told us the story of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus and the truth about Jesus. And so we know that what you're saying can't possibly be true. The Lord Jesus triumphed over Satan and the spiritual forces of darkness. And so when it says, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you, what's interesting about this in the Greek language, you here is not singular, it's plural. The reason why this becomes so very, very important, it is, it isn't just simply a reference to whatever's inside of the individual. He's talking about a reference to the community or the congregation of believers. The idea being a group, a family of believers have held on to the truth and believe the truth. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you it's possible, it's possible that some were feeling weak. Some might have been confused. Some may have been even uncertain. Wow, so many people have so many things to say about Jesus. You know, the Mormons say he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. And the Jehovah's Witnesses say he's the archangel Michael. And, and the, the Muslims think he's just a regular guy. He's a good guy, maybe even the best guy who ever lived. But he's only human. What's true? It may be that whatever is happening with weakness or confusion or certainty, they've held on to Jesus. They've held on to the truth. They've remained in fellowship. They've refused to cave into the false doctrine and the false teachers and the false claims. They remain in fellowship with God and with the saints. So what do we do? When we find a false teacher or 
or false prophet. We punch them out. No, that's not what the Bible tells us to do. What about like our Muslim friends? Let's, let's behead them. No, that's, that's not a biblical option either. Our job isn't to hurt people, even people we disagree with. That's not our job. Our job isn't to hurt people or make life miserable for people. So how do you overcome them? According to John, they simply refused to recognize or believe their false teachings and follow the false teachers. And they remained in friendship and fellowship with God. And they didn't flaunt their victory or flaunt their pride. They simply said, John says, because he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. You know what the mystery of the text is? Who's he? Who's the he in the text? Well, I'm going to give you three options. It's either God, according to chapter 3, verse 20, where it says, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. So John's saying, God's in your heart. Or God in Christ in chapter 2, verse 14, it says, I've written to you fathers because you've known him who's from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you're strong and the word of, and the word of God abides in you. And you've overcome the wicked one. The idea being God in Christ inside of you. Or the Holy Spirit who indwells every true believer, according to chapter 3, verse 24. According to chapter 4, verse 13. Maybe there's a, a fourth option. Maybe it's the triune God. Maybe it's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And who's the one in the world? Because greater is he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Who's that person in the world? Is it the Antichrist? Or is it the spirit of the Antichrist? Is it the false teachers or the false prophets? Is it Satan? I think that maybe the best answer is Satan because Ultimately, it's Satan who energizes, reinforces, and reminds the false prophets and the false teachers to oppose God, oppose the gospel, oppose grace. And so John is basically saying, do you know what? I've given you everything that you need to stand against the opposition the lies, the false doctrine. And then we test ourselves. Look what it says in verse five. They are of the world. Therefore, they speak as of the world and the world hears them. The New Living Translation reads this way. These people belong to this world. So they speak from the world's viewpoint and the world listens to them. It's the same word, cosmos. Who is the world? The people who stand in opposition to God, who stand in opposition to the gospel, who stand in opposition to Christ. And so if a person says, you know what, the Bible's probably not true, the world goes, that's right. The world says, or the person says, you know what, you aren't a special creation of God. There was no such thing as Adam and Eve. Evolution is probably true. Um, 
You're here strictly by accident. Sorry to break the news to you, but there is no God. There is no heaven. There is no hell. And the world goes. So whatever false prophet, whatever false teacher, whatever false message that they give, does the world applaud? Just so long as you don't say something really scary, like human beings are sinners and they need a savior and Jesus is the savior. And they go, wait, <laughs> time out, time out. Do you really believe that nonsense? They're of the world, therefore they speak as of the world and the world hears them. But John says, we are of God. He who knows God hears us. He who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John is making a bold statement. You can't be of God and against God at the same time. He who knows God hears us. When he says us, I think what he's talking about is the apostles. He's not just simply talking about the Christians at Ephesus or even the people that he's writing to. He's talking about Peter, James, and John. He's talking about the close companions who walked and talked with Jesus. Who are the faithful preachers? He gives two tests. Number one, the first test has already been given to us in verse two. Every spirit that confesses Jesus, agrees with God, says the same thing, is come in the flesh, the incarnation. Faithful preachers say the same thing that the Bible says about Jesus. It seems crazy to have to just sort of pound this in. But if a person is not saying the same thing that the Bible says about Jesus, John says they are not of God. Faithful preachers embrace essential Christian doctrine and sound doctrine. The sound teacher believes in the authority, inerrancy, sufficiency of the scripture. Faithful teachers are clear on the essentials. And they're generous on the non-essentials. And the second test incorporates the idea of what the church has taught. That's what I think it means when he says, by this we know the spirit of truth or error. In verse 6, we are of God, John. He who knows God hears us. Peter, James, John. What Jesus has said about himself. What the gospel writers said about Jesus. What the whole Bible says about Jesus. What has the church historically believed and taught? Do the believers accept their ministry? Faithful preachers should be able to appeal to born-again Christians who say, yeah, you know what, I've turned from my sin and I've repented of my sin and I've trusted Jesus as my Savior. The Holy Spirit's come to live inside of me and now I've decided to walk the walk that he's calling me to. He who knows God hears us. Faithful preachers get a response from the body of Christ unfaithful preachers should cause the body of Christ to say, you know, what you're saying doesn't sound right. And it doesn't sound true. By the way, what are the marks of a cult? Quickly, number one. The marks of a cult 
are they're going to claim authority outside of the Bible. They may claim authority inside the Bible, but they'll give equal or greater authority to something other than the Bible. The cultists then will have an authority. They'll say, we believe in the Bible and the Watchtower and Tract Society. We believe in the Bible and the LDS Church and Doctrines and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. We believe in the Bible and Christian science and, and Mary Baker Glover Eddy. We believe in the Bible and this particular person or that particular person. So cults will have a central authority other than the Bible. So ultimately cults find their authority not in the Bible, but in a powerful ruler or prophet or dictator. So one of the ways that you know you're in a cult is if the ruler says, or if somebody asks the ruler or the leader or the dictator, well, what if what you say it doesn't agree with the Bible? Do we go with the Bible or do we go with you? What will the cult leader say? You go with my interpretation of the Bible, which is another fancy way of saying you believe me. Cults appeal to extra biblical revelation or new revelation that validates their weird teachings. So different authority extra-biblical revelation, and invariably, cults will attack biblical Christianity. Cults will attack orthodox beliefs. Cults will say, Trinity, not true. Jesus, God and man, not true. Salvation by grace alone through faith alone, not true. The cults believe they're solving problems or contradictions through their special revelation. Cults attack biblical Christianity. And then the cult accuses the church of disunity, division, immorality, racism, hypocrisy. And then conveniently says, and we have the solutions to all of these terrible things that the church has overlooked. Cults twist, distort biblical doctrine and essential Christianity to establish their own authority. They'll appeal to the unreasonableness, at least in their way of thinking, of certain Christian teaching. You know, the Bible can't be completely true. The Trinity makes no sense to me. Salvation by grace alone, are you telling me that the only thing that you need in order to have a right relationship with God is to believe by faith that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and receive him as your savior and believe that he's the satisfying solution to the problem of sin? Yeah, that's exactly what you have to believe. Well, I don't buy that. And I don't buy this thing about hell. And you say to them, but wait a minute, according to the Bible, hell was created for the devil and his angels. So if hell was created for the devil and his angels and there is no devil, then there's probably no sin. And if there's no sin, there's probably no savior. Cults undermine the authority, the inerrancy, and the sufficiency of the word of God. And cults will often promote salvation by something other than grace. Some cults will say, yeah, you know, I believe that you're saved by grace. You need to be able to say to them, and what else? Well, you're saved by grace and you have to go to my church. You have to read my book. You have to go door to door. You have to sell candy. You have to take a missions trip. You have to do this. You have to do that. You have to believe 
that Sun Young Moon is the reincarnated savior. You have to believe that my Korean wife is Mother God who's ascended from heaven, came down from heaven. You have to believe, it doesn't matter how crazy or weird it is, they just invite you to believe it. And cults will undermine the assurance of salvation and eternal life by Jesus and grace. Cults define salvation as adherence to their teaching. So we test the spirits who claim to speak by the spirit by asking them some very simple questions. Tell me what you believe about Jesus. And if they don't say what the Bible says, say, I'm sorry, that's not what the Bible says. Ask them, do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus? Listen to this. Our heart, reason, history, and the work of Christ convince us that without him we cannot achieve our goal, that without him we're doomed by God, only Christ can save. These sensitive thoughts were written by a 17-year-old. He had been baptized in the Lutheran church in 1824. At age six, he was confirmed. At age six, he was baptized. He was confirmed at age 16. He was getting ready to graduate from high school. He was required to write an essay on a religious subject. He chose to explore, get this, he's he's 17, quote, the union of believers with Christ, according to St. John's gospel, chapter 15, verses one through 14, an exposition on its basic essence, its absolute necessity and its consequences. The fruit of our union with Christ, he continues, is our willingness to sacrifice our, ourselves for our fellow man and the joy which the Epicureans in their superficial philosophy sought in vain is a joy only known to the innocent heart, united with Christ, through Christ, in God, unquote. You know who wrote that? Karl Heinrich Marx. But in 1844, nine years later, He abandoned the Bible. He abandoned the gospel. He abandoned Jesus. In fact, his militant atheism and philosophical ideas of man's struggle of a classless utopia from the mind-numbing effects of religion established him as one of the most influential figures of the 20th century. He became the philosophical genius who inspired every subsequent Marxist, socialist, and communist. But his life didn't start off that way. He started off as a person who believed the Bible was true and that Jesus Christ was the Lord. So even if a person begins their life with the right doctrine doesn't mean that they're going to end their life with the right teaching and the right Christ. So you need to ask every single person to you, who is Jesus? How is a person saved? What do I have to believe in order to have a right relationship with God? And if they can't tell you what the Bible says about these important subjects, you don't have to go, let me tell you all about it. 
But what you should be able to do is, again, ask that most important question. If what you believed wasn't true, would you want to know? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we live in a world where so many people have abandoned belief in the Bible, in the Jesus of the Bible, in the message of the Bible, in the gospel in the Bible, in salvation by grace. Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will turn people to look once again at the person of Jesus and the claims of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus as the satisfying solution to the emptiness and the darkness that plague the people. And again, Lord, give us wisdom and grace. Lord, we pray that we would be able to speak the truth, but we would be able to speak it in love. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.